the way that I work is much more anticipatory. With all of those projects, I'm turning my attention, not turning my attention away, but I'm de-emphasizing what is a bit in exchange for a more important question, which is what if. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Marshall Brown, architect, urbanist, and principal of Marshall Brown Projects. Marshall joins us today to discuss his new book, Recurrent Visions. Marshall, welcome. Thank you, Charles. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to see you again. Um, um, I've been really interested to see, thank you for sharing with us the preview of the book, which is gonna be out uh, shortly, um, which documents uh, among many other things, um, you know, three of your primary projects over the course of the past decade uh, and a half. And I wanted to just open with um, an excerpt from the foreword uh, by Monica Ponce de Leon, your, your dean at the Princeton School of Architecture, where you also serve as associate professor of architecture. Um, in her foreword to the book, Recurrent Visions, Ponce de Leon argues that your approach is conceptual yet incisive, and that your work includes a rare sense of both intellectual imagination and offers prescient alternatives to current realities. These are extraordinary uh, compliments and true in my experience. And Ponce de Leon goes on to argue that in fact, if you look at you know urban design broadly, especially those of us that focus on the American city uh, in the recent past, um, quite a lot of attention has been devoted to questions of ecology and environmental performance uh, and questions of morphology, urban form that continue to linger. And that in relation to that, to your work really brings a focus on both the economic and the societal, and I would probably add the political to that. In this context, the book is really a summary of three major projects of the course of the past 15 years. Marshall, why did you choose those three projects from the range of you know, the, the different projects I know you've been engaged with over the course of that time? Why these three projects for this book now? Thanks, Charles. Uh, great question. So I'll say first, um, I really appreciate that you've created this this show this podcast because it's a really it deals with a really important question which is the future of urbanization in America the United States especially which I think is a really understudied question um, I think a lot of the struggles we have in urban America, however you want to define that, have to do with the lack of um, attention paid to that question broadly. And so um, I'm happy to be involved in this, in this conversation. Um, the book, uh, Recurrent Visions, which uh, my publisher, Princeton Architectural Press, will want me to say will be out May 17th and is available for pre-order already. <laughs> it's your local bookseller near you. Yes, as your on your favorite online bookseller, um, it's my first book about my practice, um, which was officially established in 2011, but has been going on a bit before then. One of the projects in the book predates that, and so to answer your question, I chose these three projects because they really um, represent the trajectory of my creative output and my thinking as someone who I say is sort of ending the first phase of their, their career as a designer and entering the, the next. So it's on the one hand, 
all the work is really about the, the future of particular cities. And I think the future of um, architecture and urban design, but it's also for me, a bit of a look backward. It's an attempt to, let's say, yes, yeah, summarize or put a point on the approach or the approaches that I've tried to develop uh, within my studio practice. One of the things that strikes me about the book is, you know, speaking to this point of you know, your practice has been established. You've been, you know, a, a national figure for some time in these spaces. And as your first book, I just want to comment on the level of restraint. I mean, I think it's it's not not very common that somebody coming out after a decade and a half of of productive work um, has the restraint to publish three projects, critical reflections by authors, curators. You know, like like I'm I'm just struck by the the curatorial choices that you've made, given like the impulse for so many is to publish everything they've done when their first book comes out. Yes, I think um, I can attribute some of that restraint to engagements I've had with the world of visual arts. Um, there's another part of my practice which has been recognized by the visual art world. It has to do with my drawing practice, and my collage practice. And working in those spaces, you learn very quickly that putting all of the work on the wall is the last thing you should do, right? You need to leave space and leave gaps for others to allow their imagination to enter. So, you know, um, there, yes, there are many other things that I worked on over the past uh, 20 years or so, but um, these three, I think, sort of account for the span, you know, one project from New York, one from Chicago, and one from, one from Detroit. I think everything you, you, might need to know about, you know, my approach to architecture and urbanism is more or less covered by these projects. And so um, it was about going deep into a few things as opposed to presenting kind of complete works or I'll, I'll leave that for later. <laughs> <laughs> so um, three projects describing the, the breadth of the, um, the end of the beginning, let's say, of, of, your, of your career notable already. Um, we should mention that those three projects, uh, New York, Detroit, Chicago, are accompanied um, by reflective essays by Joseph Becker, Allison Glenn, Adrian Brown, and that the book is uh, co-authored and features an introduction by curator Karen Kai. So again, restraint, I mean, given the relative possibilities of, a, of an impressive body of work like, uh, like yours and, 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 and an inaugural publication of this kind, I was struck by the range of voices that you were able to bring together. Um, let's open with um, a conversation about um, New York. The first project, uh, you know, this is the part of the, your response to, um, uh, to the, the, the failed you know, Gary Ratner proposal from 2003, um, looking for the, the kind of the site of Vanderbilt rail yards. Um, and your project is really, um, I would describe it as a kind of counter proposal, a kind of critique by implication through the metier of urban design. Um, and in some ways you touched on this in your 2007 essay, um, not good, uh, but well-behaved. And I wanna just sort of start there and ask you to kind of reprise for our audience, like what was your response to that original uh, proposal for the Vanderbilt Yards and, and your response to the Gary and Ratner proposal? And how did that kind of uh, suggest doing your own piece of work in response? In 2003, to give a little context, I was um, a young architect 
only three years out of graduate school, living in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, working for different firms in New York. I had worked for Davis Brody Bond, and then um, I spent a short while working for Pentagram Design. And the master plan designed by Frank Gehry and commissioned by Forest City Ratner for the Atlantic Yards was commissioned in 2003. It was a nat- well, it was announced in 2003, let's, let's put it that way. And I think what's important for people to understand is 2003 was what, what New York was like in 2003, and more importantly, what Brooklyn was like in 2003. It was kind of the, if this was the beginning for me, it was kind of the, the end of the beginning for the, the, the so-called renaissance of, of Brooklyn, especially downtown Brooklyn. So Fort Greene, it was the moment just before Fort Greene became known as, let's say, the best neighborhood in all, all of New York City. Um, before real estate property values really started to overheat, they were already heating up. And um, it was the beginning of the Bloomberg years. And it was immediately post 9-11. There was an Olympic bid on the table for Brooklyn. So there was a lot going on. It was very, it was a very intense time. Uh, the High Line wasn't built yet, right? <laughs> it's almost, it's almost like a prehistory. So that said, um, when this project was announced, I was actually living in the neighborhood directly adjacent to the site. And I had walked past this site almost every day, the eight acre uh, rail yard. And when I heard about it on the news and saw what was proposed, I was a bit shocked. Um, I was and continue to be a, fran- a, a big fan of the work of, of Frank Gehry. And I was a bit shocked by the nature of the proposal, both in terms of its design, but even more so the politics. Um, The project was announced basically in this way. We, Forest City Ratner, are going to redevelop the Atlantic Avenue rail yards, right? The Atlantic yards, um, the MTVA Vanderbilt rail yards. We have Frank Gehry. He's done the design. This is what it looks like. There's a basketball arena something like 18, 19, 17 skyscrapers, and the mayor, the borough president, and the governor are behind it. So it's happening. Locally, you will have no say. We're going to have to demolish several blocks of existing property, homes, and businesses. We will offer you money for those homes and businesses. If you don't take it, we will take it through eminent domain, period. So I... um was concerned because as a young architect, it was shocking to me that someone like Frank Gehry, you know, the world's most famous architect, who I really respected, would be involved in something like that, would actually choose to be involved in something like that. Uh, no disrespect to him, but that's how I felt at the time. And so I got involved really at a, out of a sense of self-preservation to see if, okay, you know, is there some other way we can do this thing? So I volunteered my efforts. Um, I actually walked up to our city councilwoman, whose name happens to be uh, Letitia James. And um, she was our city councilwoman at the time. And some of your listeners may recognize her name because she's now the attorney general of the state of New York and is, has become famous for suing the NRA and, um, being instrumental in the resignation of Governor Andrew, former Governor Andrew Cuomo, and is now uh, deep in the throes of prosecuting the former president of the United States, his business, and uh, his family. 
So at that time, though, Tish, uh, which is what a lot of people call her, um, was a newly minted kind of rookie city council person. And she was being completely shut out of the negotiations about the site as well. Bullied, basically, publicly bullied. And I think, I don't want to speak for her, but my sense was that she really wasn't given any choice but to fight. People who lived around the site uh, decided to fight it. And so I just volunteered my my services to her. I walked up to her after some some meeting. It was, you know, like these things usually are in a church in Fort Greene somewhere. And much to my shock, I received a call from her office the next morning. So I had to sneak out of work at Pentagram Design, like <laughs> put on a suit, go down to uh, the city council offices. She shut me in a room and said, okay, Mr. Brown, so what do you, what do you propose that we do? And I think the reason that probably happened was that I had, in hindsight, I, I think I had stepped into a vacuum. The thing was, because the, it, the project already had the support of the mayor, it had all these buildings in it that I think most professionals, most established professionals knew that Frank Gehry was not going to design all of those buildings, even though he had done the master plan. And there was an Olympic bid on the table. There was a lot of money on the table. And so some other senior practitioners who might have, let's say, spoken up about this, this thing um, were keeping silent. And so it left a space that I, um, I'll also mention some of my collaborators, John Nafziger, Sarah Strauss, uh, my colleague, Anna Deitch. Also later, Alex Felsen joined us. You know, some of these people or many of them, um, you know, and then later people who joined us in the workshops like Damon Rich and, you know, it's, it, I have the, the original roster of the first workshop we put on and it's, it's a pretty um, esteemed bunch of, bunch of people, but we were able to basically step into this, into this, into this void where others who let's say had more mouths to feed uh, didn't want to tread at that time. And so it all started, it all started from there. So as a, you, you, you began this project, you know, as a, both as an architect, but also as a citizen, let's say, or as a kind of resident, let's say, through, through a conversation um, with your uh, elected and, uh, and appointed uh, kind of political leadership. Um, um, in, in that regard, I'm, I'm also struck by the extent to which many of your projects in the book and in your practice more broadly um, touch, they use, I would say that they use urban design, they use architectural tools to get at you know societal questions, and so I know that um, uh, shortly thereafter, um, in the in the in the two thousands, I think I believe it was two thousand and eight, you moved to Chicago, took a faculty appointment at the Illinois Institute of Technology, and so your your focus shifts to Chicago. And I want to ask you about that. Has your practice, has your work always focused on your locale? That is, you, you seem to have been engaged in places that were close at hand. Uh, is, is being next to these questions, being in these places, central to your practice, or is that change? over time? Yes and no, or no and yes. I think that one of you, you just said something that caught my ear, which is the close at hand. I think that has something to do with the way my brain works. Um, in general, um, call it opportunism, call it resourcefulness in the way that I work. So literally work, for example, I use collage a lot in my work. A lot of that is about grabbing things that are close at hand. I think that I've also recognized that many of the designers that I appreciate, the architects, urbanists that I appreciate the most also have had a great awareness 
of the places in which they live and work, even if they don't live and work in those places exclusively. So I think that is um, an important source of knowledge and creative inspiration for really excellent architects, uh, designers. So there's that. And then there's just kind of biographic circumstance. But for example, there was, before I got to Chicago, there was a kind of interregnum in Cincinnati where I actually had my first teaching position for three years. And, and I continued to work on the, on the Atlantic Yards work for much of that time that I was there. Um, and then I think when I arrived in Chicago, I mean, you can call it a choice, but I think when you're in a place like Chicago, it's really a capital of American architecture and urbanism. So it's a hugely missed opportunity kind of if you don't take it on, you know, as a, as a kind of core part of your, of your creative project. But at the same time, I was doing things in other places. I did a couple of things in Detroit. So the Detroit project that's in the book, I actually worked on from Chicago. But I think in many ways, my experiences in Chicago and the work that I'd done in Chicago prepared me to, let's say, engage a place like Detroit. But I, I don't think it comes from a sense of, you know, kind of localism or provincialism or anything like that. Here's what I'll say, especially... Architecture is a little bit different, but once you get up to the scale of urbanism, it becomes harder to work in places that you don't know very well. It becomes, I think, exponentially more difficult. One, because there's so much more to know. And two, because urbanism is a longer, it's a longer game, right? It strikes me in your, in your observation, uh, in your reading of the Gary Ratner proposal of 03, in fact, that distance is so evident. You, you as you said, as a, as a professional, you could read that distance, that alienation. And I think so much of your work has been a very effective, you know, counter proposal to or critique of the placelessness of capital, frankly. And when you describe those 16 to 19 tall buildings, right, or the idea of a plan produced elsewhere uh, as if it was simply a, a way to reproduce um, capital. Um, you mentioned your, you know, your, your practice, which is also engaged in, in the art world. Um, you know, your, you, you mentioned your collages. I would add to your collage practice, your habit of making these large scale models. And as I think of your work and as I've experienced it in exhibitions and publications over the years, I'm struck by, you know, this sense of it being at hand. It's on the one hand, materially present. And this is, of course, in, a, in an era in which we have all manner of, you know, digital obfuscation and animation and all sorts of smoke and mirrors available. And there's something about both your drawings and models in which you, you describe them as such, right? So in the book, they're not simply describing counter proposals for the future of the American city. They're also dimensioned, they're materially described and they're considered as works in their own right. And I think that's, it's notable in part because of its, its consistency over the course of the last two decades, but also that double valence is intriguing to me that on the one hand, I'm, I'm interested in the way that you're using urbanism as a kind of societal critique, right? As a kind of alternative to the dominant mode of city making that we see in the American city and the social and political, you know, you know kind of, uh, uh, kind of um, uh, uh, failures that it represents. And at the same moment, the idea of urbanism as a cultural form, right? The idea that the, the, the architect makes a drawing, makes a model and that these things have their own value. Uh, in that regard, I'm, I'm interested in a project that was only briefly mentioned um, 
in the introduction to the to the book by Karen Keis, um, which was the proposal, uh, the immodest proposal uh, that you made in 2013 to relocate the U.S. Capitol to Chicago. Now, you, so you've, you've mentioned, you know, Chicago as a kind of architectural capital. I, you know, continue, you know, to have a, a, a deep, deep affection for that city, having spent a decade there myself. And so the idea of relocating the, the U.S. capital inland uh, in the context of climate change, the, 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 the collage I have in mind is one that shows the Washington Monument underwater after three hurricanes in five years. And so to tell us about the, what was the impetus behind that? Um, clearly, you're talking about environmental conditions, but there's a deeper critique there, no? Yes. Yeah, so that proposal for relocating the nation's capital to the to Chicago, which I wryly titled First City, which for, for those who aren't aware, Chicago is, of course, known as the second city, but retitling it First City was actually part of um, a scenario planning exercise that I developed when I first arrived to Chicago. The New York project taught me a lot of hard lessons, and one of the most important ones, and this is a lot of what the book is about, the, the book's title points to it, Recurrent Visions, is it really schooled me in the challenges that time poses to people who do the kind of work that we do. The real, uh, one, of the, one of the real, I think, um, let's say, problems was that those of us who lived and worked around the Atlantic Yards had been walking past it every day, right? And, and we had some, we, we needed to take some of the blame for what happened because we never imagined that that place was ever going to be anything different than what it was until someone else came along, right? And showed us. And this was a, a lesson that really stuck with me. There were also things that happened where as I kept going back over the years, right? So I probably worked on that project from 2003 to 2009. It's still going on. It's still not finished. People who were children became teenagers and became, you know, like voting adults. And then it became evident to me as it is evident to, I think, people like you and some of our colleagues, but not nearly many enough, which is that our job is vision, right? We have to be able to look 10, 20, 30 years over the horizon to really be able to do the kind of work that we wanna do. So one has to imagine that world, right? 20, 30 years from now, what is our world gonna be like plausibly? And so when I got to Chicago, I kept those lessons in mind and um, I got very interested in tech tools and techniques from outside of our field, specifically from scenario planning. And again, you know, things that are close at hand, it turned out I arrived also in the centennial year of Burnham, Daniel Burnham's plan of, of Chicago. And so I remember going to, it was like a lecture or symposium where someone was talking about the plan and then they showed this picture of the center of the plan, which was the civic center that Daniel Burnham had proposed, which was never built. And what's there right now is a site that you, of course, will know very well, which is the was formerly known as the Chicago Circle Interchange. It's like the third worst traffic interchange in the country in terms of, and it's basically a circle. I mean, it's a circle. It's a hole 
right at the kind of main axis of the city, right? Like how American. The only public <laughs> university named for a traffic interchange in <laughs> yeah. Illinois at Chicago Circle. <laughs> like that's an American city, right? Like that's the thing you would do in America and, and nowhere else. So it became obvious to me like, okay, this is, this is my project, right? So, but then I understood, all right, so if I'm going to imagine the future of this site, then I need to figure out a way to put my mind into the future and imagine forces that would be powerful enough to actually transform that site in some way that was, let's say, that somehow contributed to the, to the urban environment. But that's a tall order. So long story short, um, or not, not as long, I developed actually three scenarios for the future of the city in a project I call the center of the world. Um, one, which you mentioned, called First City, where the nation's capital moves to the city. Another one called Holy City, which is about um, the idea that after Oprah's eventual, Oprah Winfrey's eventual passing, that pilgrims descend upon the city and... Um, basically, there's a kind of a, a pilgrimage site, a holy city built on the site, which is very close to where she used to film her famous TV show. Harpo Studios on the near west side. Yes, Harpo Studios is like just up the road in the in, or a, shr a shrine in, in this version, a pilgrimage shrine. And then the third one was about the emergence of a new so socialist stock exchange, um, because at that time we also had the financial collapse. 2007, 2008, and the rise of, you know, um, Occupy Wall Street and other movements. So this was part of a larger attempt to try to develop tools and techniques for working from the future backwards. And that led to me developing other things, which the book talks about, which is this techniques, these techniques of using um, film and video and creating these uh, narratives, future histories, uh, et cetera. I, I want to ask you about the 2013 proposal for the Chicago Socialist Stock Exchange that you mentioned, one of the triad uh, of, of projects coming out of that in the wake of Burnham, let's say. Um, so this was, as you say, you know, coming out of, you know, Occupy Wall Street, uh, other, you know, social uh, social protests at the same moment, of course, is now nearly a decade ago and, and in, in a way anticipates, I think, many of um, our present predicaments. Um, tell us about, you know, that notion of, you know, describing a new stock exchange uh, explicitly socialist uh, and what that was about, like what, 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 what that aspired to do by way of image making. So like many of us, I had this sort of lesson drilled into my head, especially as a student, but even following that, you know, public work was really very much about kind of being a, a you know, focusing on process over product, um, being a channel for kind of collective desires, et cetera, et cetera. But what I found out from the beginning was, um, you know, is in my experiences in New York, was that there's still an important role, especially in our contemporary image culture, culture um, for uh, architects and urbanists to play in constructing visions. And in fact, I started out in the Atlantic Yards focused on process. So our goal was not to try to like out-design Frank Gehry. That would have been nuts, right? <laughs> we weren't gonna like out-model him, out-design him, et cetera. And so what we focused on was kind of creating sets of principles, et cetera, et cetera. We were good at that, but then people said, okay, that's fine, but we need a vision. 
And they would use this word over and over. We need a vision. We need a vision. They just kept saying it till uh, finally, I just like gave in and started doing that. And um, so when I got to Chicago and started working this project for the center of the world, I realized like waiting for, waiting for a client, waiting for permission. And this has to do with the way that I run my practice is that it, I realize if you wait around for a client or instructions or somebody to come along and tell you what it is they want or need, et cetera, et cetera, it's probably too late. And so um, it's probably far too late. And so I've, the way that I work is much more anticipatory. And so with the Chicago Socialist Stock Exchange or with all of those projects, I'm turning my attention, not turning my attention away, but I'm de-emphasizing what is a bit in exchange for a more important question, which is what if, right? Well, what if, right? And trying to construct pictures of the future based again, not on what is, but what if. So what if socialism wins? It's very simple, right? What if there was a new holy city? Um, what if, right, the ecological apocalypse comes? But you know, what if everyone owns their home? What if no one owns their home? And also holding these questions in my mind simultaneously. So a lot of it has to do with the notion that the future is not a series of cause and effects. History is written as, as a kind of series of causes and effects. It's very neat and very clean, but the future is messy and expansive. Um, I think of it more as a space I think of time now more as a space. So I talk about scenario space, and that's one of the things that's brought up in the introduction, kind of different model of time, um, which has to do with divergent, uh, divergent scenarios. And so the, the socialist stock exchange is about that. Now, what's funny is how quickly the future catches up with you, right? Because I hadn't heard of Bernie Sanders, yet here we are, right? And the DSA, which is an organization, the Democratic Socialists of America, which has you know, been around for a long time, is now a big thing. And Bernie Sanders, an avowed socialist, is now in charge of the, you know, the budget in Congress. So things that, I, that maybe sounded a little bit crazy then suddenly now become very plausible realities. It's interesting how this, you know, the... This notion of scenario planning that you referred to earlier and the premise of, well, if this, then what, as a kind of logic, gives you a space in which you can imagine, you know, divergent futures. And at the one hand, you know, in 2013 in Chicago to propose a socialist stock exchange, I'm sure was, you know, at the limits of at the limits of imagination. And as you say, reality very quickly eclipses that. And and so what's what I find interesting about that is the is that double valence is that the that in your hands as an architect that these images have this power to conjure this alternative reality. And yet, of course, you know, it's not about you being, you know, accurate in your prediction. It's rather how does it catalyze conditions at the moment? And so, so your work has, you know, tended to, to follow and anticipate in many ways a range of questions. I know that, you know, many of our listeners may have seen your work in the 2016 uh, Venice Architecture Biennial, um, uh, in which you were one of a group of people focusing on Detroit. And I, I want to talk to you about the, the Kendra Civic Academy in Detroit and your work there. And uh, first of all, I mean, I, I want to open with, you know, this, we've talked a lot about in this series about Detroit, um, you know, we've been you know, following Detroit in a way as a venue for these conversations. Um, and I wonder about, you know, 
how you think of your work in relationship to what's been described uh, or you know inferred as the kind of the renaissance of, of architecture in Detroit or the kind of return to kind of urbanism in Detroit in the past years. I feel like I'm telling a lot of stories today, even though we're supposed to be talking about the future, but that's the way I've started to think. So first I, I'll have to, before we get into Detroit, which I know something your show is very interested in because I've listened to almost every episode at this point. Um, full disclosure. So in 2000, I think it was the winter of 2014, 15, I was working in my studio. I remember it. It was a cold day in my studio in Chicago. The heat didn't work very well. And the phone rang and it was from a search firm. And they were calling me to see if I was interested in interviewing for the um, position of the head of city planning in Detroit. This is a little well-known fact. I have not advertised it, but it's true. Um, I went, I interviewed, I met the mayor. I did all that. I toured the city. I didn't get the job. Maurice Cox got the job to which I thought great <laughs> because I was terrified that they were going to offer me the job. And then I would have to put my money where my mouth is and um, then take it. So hats off to Maurice. That said, I was then, you know, only just a few months later asked by Mon Monica Ponce Leon and Cynthia Davidson to participate in the Biennale project, which I think was a much better fit uh, for, for me. That project was a really exciting one for me to work on because it allowed me in some ways to demonstrate um, my awareness about many of the issues that I think you have across the Midwest. So even though the book starts with me in New York, the truth is I've spent now the vast majority of my adult life in the Midwest. I went to college in St. Louis. I taught in Cincinnati for three years. I lived in Chicago for 10 years, right? So the so-called, the space of the so-called Rust Belt is kind of where I formed a great deal of my creative and intellectual self. So unlike some of the other architects, you know, Detroit was not like unknown to me because my studio was on the South side of Chicago. And I say to people sometimes, you know, we have a Detroit in Chicago. People talk about the scale of Detroit and how big it is. I say, well, you know, Detroit might be, what is it like 170 square miles or is it 107 or 170 square miles? Chicago is like 240 or something like that. Um, so you could fit the entire city of Detroit within it. And there are vast uh, territories within the city of Chicago that, you know, are indistinguishable from much of what you've heard about Detroit or Cleveland or Youngstown or even parts of St. Louis and other places. So that said, um, even though I didn't live and work in Detroit, it was no stranger to me. And so that project was really, I don't want to make it sound like they had pitched me a softball, but I felt like I was ready <laughs> when the opportunity, opportunity came. Detroit's no softball, but certainly you were well, you were well prepared. I mean, a, a part of what resonates for me in that, in that account is, you know, in, in our research on Detroit, you know, from years ago, a part of what is compelling about the city is, is, is that, as you say, you can find aspects like Detroit in almost every American post-industrial city 
across the country. And yet there is something about the legibility, the extremity of it in Detroit. But I think it's important that you've you've described it coming you know, from, from the region and doing work in a place that you felt that you knew something about it as opposed to simply being talent um, flying in for a project. Yeah, and you know, um, this might sound ungenerous in some way, but my concern, you know, there's been a lot of, um, so this is why I gave the disclaimer. There's been a lot of attention given to Detroit as sort of the poster child for depopulation, you know, the challenges of urban expansion in America, um, so-called vacancies, so-called blight, so-called rust belt, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a problem with that um, intense focus on Detroit. One, because I am not convinced, others will largely disagree, that these challenges can be dealt with most effectively or thought about most creatively under such extreme circumstances, like such extreme circumstances you find in Detroit. And so my feeling was that, you know, these cities, again, Detroit, Youngstown, Cleveland, et cetera. Um, let's even include like places like Phoenix, because even though you have growth in those places, you still have what I see as many of the same challenges of just, you know, uneven development and, um, you know, the, the way in which uh, the unbuilt starts to dom dominate the built. And so um, I felt like those those issues and those challenges and just those, I don't even want to call them challenges, but just those those conditions could be worked on more effectively in a place like Chicago, where you still have a functioning economy, you still have resources, you still have, you know, like the the house is not on fire. <laughs> right. And so that was that's another reason why I thought Chicago was a great place to be, because you could, you know, address many issues that are being dealt with in many places. But in a situation where, you know, you could kind of you weren't in a kind of constant sort of like DEFCON 4, like if not this, then we're over the cliff. Right. Let me see if, I, if, if, this, if this resonates with you, Marshall. So there's something about describing the conditions in Detroit in extremity that by definition makes it difficult maybe then to generalize, right? So, I mean, one of the things we've said in this, in this series has been in talking to people, talking to folks about work in Detroit is that I think one of my takeaways has been every sector did their job, right? From the elected and appointed officials through Maurice Cox's office, through architects and urbanists and the Kresge Foundation. And so you have this response, which is across all of civil society in a way. And you could say that, you know, you yourself and others were prepared to respond in various ways. And at the same moment, the, you know, that's kind of an extraordinary alignment. You know, it, first of all, it's taken decades to get to that moment of alignment. We'll see how long it lasts, but also how generalizable are its lessons um, to other American cities. You know, if, if it's defined, you know, whereas I think what you're, what you're, what you're characterizing are conditions that are shared enough so as to be relevant in a range of other places. Yes. And, um, you know, I have a great deal of empathy for what the people of Detroit are going through, continue to go through, have gone through. 
And I think that at a certain point, and, and I understand also that there was a great deal of critique of the work that we did and the show that was put on. And I understand that point of view. And, and I think that only supports a bit of what I'm trying to trying to say, um, because, you know, when people are dealing in their day to day with just like very, very fundamental problems of survival, it's very hard to kind of get there to sit there and, um, you know, listen to kind of, you know, not crazy, but certainly um, to get them to start to push the limits of their their imagination about what their reality, how their reality might be different. I also think that I found it very strange when I would go to Detroit. I mean, this actually happened. I think this was in preparation for the show or during some other visit for some other project where I was sitting in in a restaurant in downtown and cafe. I was the only person in there. It was lunchtime and talking to the bartender and we began chatting about a new apartment building that had just gone up um, across the street. And I had noticed when I come there, there were some new things. There was also like a John Barbatos boutique kind of on a corner. And then this new apartment building, I started asking about it and she said, yeah, you know, the units are renting for something like $4,000 a month, to which I was shocked because I was coming from Chicago and, you know, like, even in Chicago, which is the third largest city in the United States for $4,000 a month, like you wouldn't even conceive of paying $4,000 a month, you know, for an apartment for that amount of money, you could live in the, like the, the wealthiest neighborhood in Chicago. And I was living in a pretty good one, not far from the mayor and paying, you know, something like a quarter of that. So that to me pointed towards something which made me very suspicious, you know, to say like, hey, this cannot be good, <laughs> right? Like that, that kind of extreme overheating, right? It's just exacerbating. And I think this is one of the big problems in, um, I know it was a problem in Chicago and I think it's an evolving issue in Detroit. It's just uneven development, right? That you have whole districts of the city which are completely overheated and then, other districts which are going in the opposite direction. And I think that this is one of the things that we, that we struggle with. And I could infer, but let me ask the question, or does that raise a concern for you about the role of, you know, architects, you know, artists, design culture being used as, you know, kind of agents or ameliorants of gentrification? Yes. And this is, this is one of the things I don't even think it's just gentrification. I think it's bigger than that. For me, the, Discourse around gentrification is one that I tend to avoid because it too quickly descends into a discussion about heroes and heroes and villains. Um, you know, who was here first and who came later, you know, who owns a place and who doesn't. It gets into kind of weird nativism, which I think is problematic. Um, but the there is, I think, uh, what I've been generally concerned with and interested in is just what it means, what is the role of designers in our neoliberal era, um, which has become increasingly dominated by the forces of, you know, finance and real estate, which is the part, which is a part of that. And what that means is a form of power and how we wrestle with it. In some cases, even kind of channel it as a medium. And what is our posture with respect to that? 
I don't necessarily have easier and easy answers. I think it depends on the, on the situation. So that's why, for example, I was interested in imagining something like a socialist stock exchange or in the Dequinder Civic Academy project, you know, I'm a child who is edu- of public schools, right? And so the whole discourse around public schools in America um, and the increasing privatization of public schools vis-a-vis charter schools, which of course the people who run charter schools insist like, oh no, these are still public schools, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> fine. I understand it's not a bright line between the public and the private. Okay, fine. The project is goes directly at that and doesn't necessarily offer what I would call a critique, but it tries to ask the question, well, what if the school system is completely privatized? Then the question is, what will we ask of the corporations, right? What will we ask? And what the project proposes, we will ask them for everything, right? We will say that you must do your part to see to not just the education, but the housing, you know, the kind of physical, (laughs) you know, social, emotional, spiritual welfare of these children, their families, the teachers, and everyone else who lives inside this 3 million square foot citadel within the city, right? So that is the, um, let's say, that's an example of the, the position I've tried to take as a designer because I recognize, of course, that architecture, urbanism is a manifestation of power. Um, and so this notion that we can somehow escape it, I think is really naive. Um, but at the same time, I think that we have to, um, and so I've chosen to go the other way, say, okay, let's just go at it directly. Again, I was inspired by, I've been very much inspired by the history of Daniel Burnham's plan of Chicago, because, you know, everyone talks about it. Most have never read it and fewer understand the history behind it. Um, If you ask most people, they would probably assume that it was a public plan. It was not, as you and I both know. It was commissioned by the Commercial Club of Chicago privately. Daniel Burnham was a member, so he was not a disinterested party. He was a a member of this club, right? You can see him there in the photos. And so, um, but at the same time, it's interesting also to note, he did not take a fee for the plan personally, um, but he just took enough money to pay for his employees and the models and the renderings, et cetera, et cetera. And then the thing was published in 1909 and he died in 1912. So that, that, that history or that model um, of practice has inspired me in a, in a certain sense is that, you know, we can't get away from capital. We can't get away from power. um, But we have to, I think, develop a posture towards it. That's, that again starts from the what if, like, okay, well, if this, then what do we ask in return? In a culture, in our culture, in which um, essentially everything has been financialized, it strikes me that your work, your projects, and the publication of Recurrent Visions uh, offers a a glimpse of a set of alternative spaces um, uh, that are maybe um, uh, alternative options uh, for the future of the American city. Marshall Brown, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. 
This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.